As an undergraduate reading modern history in St. John's from 1958 to 1961, I had three in-college tutors for British history, then a compulsory mainline subject. Howard Colvin for the medieval period, Keith Thomas for the so-called middle period, and Michael Hurst for the modern period. All three, in their different ways, did me proud, and all three fully engaged me in the subjects they taught. But my allegiance to Victorian Britain had already been formed under my two fine sixth-form schoolmasters at Merchant Taylor's School, Alex Jeffries and Guy Wilson, who ensured that I came to St John's as the Thomas White Scholar. I imagine that lovely scholarship has now been abolished, but it was lovely while it was there. My first book, Drinking Victorians, launched me on British history between 1815 and 1872, and since then I've moved forward in my publishing life up to 1990, the terminal date of my two recent volumes in the New York History of England. In recent years I've been working on what I hope will become a trilogy, taking my overall coverage of British history forward from 1990 to 2010. But supposing I survive into my 80s and complete the trilogy, I then encounter a problem. Where do I go from here? If anywhere, only into the future. So it's to the future that I aim to assign the final chapter of my projected third volume. But can a historian say anything useful about the future? Experts in other academic disciplines don't always do very well. Bill Gates once allegedly said that 640 megabytes ought to be enough for anybody. <laughs> Weather forecasts didn't predict the great storm of 1987. <coughs> Kremlinologists and intelligence organisations worldwide did not predict the Berlin Wall's collapse two years later or the subsequent end of the Cold War. And economists didn't predict the depression in 2008 You'll recall the Queen's much-publicised common-sense question at a London School of Economics seminar in November 2008, not answered then or later. If these things were so large, how come everyone missed them? So should a historian abandon uh, his lecture forthwith? I hear you cry, no. <laughs> in continuing... I'll be careful not to claim too much predictive power for history, and I propose to explore the history not of the future, on which I'm no better informed than anyone else present, but of attitudes to the future. I shall argue that this is the only way in which the history of the future can be studied. I am, in effect, preoccupied with the history of planning, and we'll travel together through what I see as its four phases, and they're on the board as I'll indicate I hope here. Um, that's a sort of breakdown of the lecture in case you get lost. Um, and uh, as I'm a British historian, my illustrations will come from the United Kingdom. I'll begin by taking you right back into my first phase, into what in the 1950s was Howard Colvin's period, when he was a historian of medieval England and came near to tempting me to write a doctoral thesis on what happened to William Rufus in the New Forest. <laughs> this phase will be the shortest of the four uh, phases, you can see from the summary, um, because as a modern historian I know least about it. 
But we must remember that chronologically it lasted for far longer than the subsequent three. It runs up to the late 18th century and it differs from the later three because belief in the afterlife was integral to its outlook. Not so later. So in this first section, um, it's perhaps worth looking at the Oxford English Dictionary, which shows that words centrally concerned with attitudes for the future are very old and often used in a mystical context. Prophecy from before 1300, foretell from before 1400, foresight from 1430. People have always planned because they've always sought to control their own fate. But at a time when the afterlife seemed real, it was prudent to plan for your future in it through prayers, chantries, charities, confessionals, self-scrutiny and the like. With belief in an afterlife, one's material welfare could seem almost unimportant and even dispensable in the extreme case of martyrdom, which was of course not embarked upon without considerable thought. The link between popular religion and planning for the future persisted in the many almanacs and chapbooks widely circulated well into the 19th century and combining mystical prediction with information on such useful topics as the tides, the weather, the stars and the calendar. In parallel, the many early 19th century messiahs were preparing their followers for the end of the world by predicting its precise date, though they were seemingly unconcerned when that event failed to materialise. In this first phase, religion can hardly be separated from politics, and with the Almighty above and the monarch as his agent below, government's plans could be ambitious, though limited by their leader's personal defects, by the resultant difficulties over the succession, and by the major restraints of geography, technology, and the international power structure. Nonetheless, they felt able to boost the national recovery by beggaring their neighbours through mercantilist policies, that is, by deploying tariff barriers, import substitution and the like, to maximise national exports and minimise imports. In my second phase, however, I'll go on to discuss, um, it runs from the late 18th century to the late 19th, the second um, coming giving way gradually to the idea that mankind could create heavens below. Industrialization from the late 18th century was driven by invention and innovation and accustomed Britain as, it, as the first industrial nation to extend the notion of continuous change to ideas, attitudes and institutions. The many 19th century libertarian crusades for moral reform free trade, anti-slavery, franchise extension, internationalism and peace, often deployed religious language and methods and did not at first seem to be the secularising agencies we now know them to have been. No overt repudiation of God was involved in this very large transition in ideas and institutions, rather an unobtrusive edging out of God from direct intervention in human affairs. By this route, attitudes viewed as heretical among Christians early in the 19th century gradually came to seem quite orthodox towards the end of it. So planning for the afterlife gradually gave way in my second phase to self-help as its vehicle. From the late 18th century, there was a growing belief that if only meddling governments would let well alone, 
the individual could attain far more by working in harmony with God's plan, but spontaneously. What we now call globalization was coming into fashion. The efficiency of the free market in spontaneously gathering information and deploying it to boost the economy seemed ever more apparent and what Karl Marx once contemptuously called his holiness free trade was enthroned at the expense of the earlier narrowly patriotic protectionism. First gaining political ground among liberal conservatives in the 1820s, these ideas eventually captured the entire political system. Insofar as salvation was sought in legislation at all, it was in emancipatory legislation, in setting individuals free to realize their own full potential, whether a working man, a woman of any social class, a black slave, a white nonconformist, an Irish Roman Catholic, or as Gladstone once put it, an Afghan in the hill villages of Afghanistan among the winter snows. Hence the 19th century Liberal Party's huge expansive capacity right up to 1914, fueled by the conviction that spontaneous initiatives from individuals and groups would somehow come together to generate a prosperous economy. With the aristocratic estate concerned for locality and environment, with the middle-class family firm concerned to establish a reputation, and with the respectable working man eager for himself and family to win respectability by moving in the right company, there was at every social level good reason for orienting oneself towards an earthly future. This phase two liberal emancipatory program combined collective but not collectivist planning among experts and professionals with the personal planning of individuals in their private lives. Through sobriety, thrift, hard work, enterprise and domesticity. Respectability was not easily attained if only because being unrespectable was so much more fun. As George Orwell wrote in 1933, the great redeeming feature of poverty is the fact that it annihilates the future, so that within certain limits it is actually true that the less money you have, the less you worry. I'll show you slides one and two. This is the slum rough population on a street corner uh, in 1856. Uh, and this is um, a significant moment where um, somebody is being persuaded by a respectable artisan to cross the road. That is to cross the road from the losing bank, that is the pub, uh, into the savings bank, which is across the road. That's symbolic of the struggles that um, the pursuit of respectability involves. Victorian liberals aim to increase the proportion of the respectable within the population at the expense of the rough. And all this can be concisely described as the making of the British middle class, in which respectability made converts at both the upper and lower levels of the, the social system, promoting high seriousness among the aristocracy and advancing respectability within the working class. This alliance of the industrious against the idle held firm for much of the 19th century and aimed to foster, with the aid of the professions, the educators, the self-educators, the philanthropists, and the less conservative among religious leaders, a newly secular and self-directed approach to the future. 
Entire occupations grew up or expanded around the attempt to avoid, minimise or at least cope with uncertainty. Civil servants, actuaries, the armed services, politicians, doctors, insurance brokers, demographers, meteorologists, economists and welfare workers. These libertarian ideas were at first more backward than forward-looking, seeking to restore a lost Arcadia, individualist rather than collectivist, and personal rather than statist. But I don't need to remind you that in increasingly urban society and industrial society, this liberal opening of windows couldn't suffice. Hence the gradual growth of governmental statistics and power. The census had begun in 1801, and government inspectors and departmental or parliamentary investigations had by 1867 been accumulating efficiently enough to receive a rare accolade from none other than Karl Marx. The social statistics of Germany and the rest of continental Western Europe, he wrote, are, in comparison with those of England, wretchedly compiled. As Marx perceived, restricting factory, factory working hours from the 1830s turned out to be the thin end of a rather large statist wedge. For governments of any persuasion in a crowded country like the United Kingdom, planning is essential and prediction is integral to it. In the First World War, the state's resources grew fast and from the mid-1930s, this governmental expertise accumulated more or less continuously. For one instance, an unobtrusive but successful governmental research take the steady improvement of weather forecasting. Without the great storm of the 14th of November 1854 at Balaclava, which caused large Anglo-French losses in the Crimean Wars, the Board of Trade would never have established its meteorological department. Still, in the Harrison household in the late 1940s, I remember as a child, the Daily Express's weather forecast cartoon, and we took the Daily Express in the house, it was called Iris Says. Iris predicted the weather for the coming day. Uh, it remained a family joke and was almost always wrong. <laughs> but it would not be wrong now if there was an equivalent. By 2014, a four-day forecast had become as accurate as a one-day forecast 30 years earlier. And a supercomputer introduced into the Met Office last year will reach full capacity next year, producing much better focused local forecasts. But I've now begun to advance from my second phase to my third, uh, which runs, broadly speaking, through the 20th century. In its attitude to the future, this phase, on which I'll say more than on all the other three, three phases, differs from the second in three respects. In its utopian inspiration, in the sheer scale of its ambition for control over the future, and in its dystopian outcome. Even in their quest to advance respectability, liberals saw that state aid, state aid would sometimes be needed. Educational, licensing, health facilitating, thrift promoting, pollution preventing, and charity regulating legislation gradually but ineluctably presented the United Kingdom with a 20th century welfare state that arrived almost by accident with considerable help from the statist and the egalitarian impact of two 20th century world wars. All this demanded more planning. 
if I dare cite Wikipedia in this company, quote, forecasting can be described as predicting what the future will look like, whereas planning predicts what the future should look like, unquote. 20th century Britain increasingly opted for the second of these two. Organised labour did not at first envisage huge bureaucratic or centralised structures. Instead, it opted for prefigurative politics through applying socialist values in daily life. Collectivism was tamed at the local level through many welfare states, nourished by sympathetic local authorities and by linking them up with co-ops, party branches, labour churches and adult education classes. So Labour's succession to the Liberals on the British left after 1918 did not cease to encourage foresight in the individual, but the party's Fabian tradition later weighed in with the research and the statistical collection required by more statist approaches. It wasn't until 1945, though, that the entire and increasingly expert civil service was put at Labour's disposal. Labour's socialist links enable it to outclass the Liberals in its visions of the future. Progress, said Oscar Wilde in his Soul of Man Under Socialism, is the realisation of utopias. Because imagination lies at the heart of utopias, the arts and the humanities exerted, if anything, more influence at this stage than the natural and social scientists so influential on labour later. The utopia a word first uncapitalised in the OED from 1601 is a campaigning asset. It highlights the defects of a present-day society by juxtaposing a very different and much more attractive society and so helps to build up the public support required for substantial change. Robert Owen's New View of Society, 1813, marks an important moment in the transition from planning for the afterlife towards planning a heaven on earth. Owing so much to his experience at New Lanark, and here it is, I hope, uh, the factory in Scotland where he honed many of his ideas, his utopia offers practical diagnoses and priorities which distinguish, distinguish it from many utopias, but its exaggerated hopes for the scale and speed of change are decidedly utopian and its tone is enthusiastically missionary with simplistic solutions for big problems. Owen wanted a religion that would focus more on morality and less on theology, but he was counterproductively forthright in repudiating orthodox religion and naively thought that true principles once known would immediately be adopted. It would have been better to redefine the content of religion as did many of its other early Christian critics, the phrenologists, the Christian socialists, and Charles Darwin, among others. Very different is that key socialist text, Looking Backward, published by the American author Edward Bellamy in 1888. It shows his hero, Julian West, visiting the Boston, Massachusetts of the year 2000 in a dream, and then returning to the Boston of 1888 newly sensitised to the defects of unrestricted competition, to its contrasts in wealth, its squalor, its bad smells and its ugly and ubiquitous advertising. The run-up to utopias often takes the form of a journey, 
sometimes a highly dramatic journey, as in H.G. Wells's time machine, to an unfamiliar part of the world, or to another world, sometimes in a dream. The charming dreamlike quality of William Morris's News from Nowhere is enhanced by the vagueness of its remedies for serious problems. Morris and Bellamy were both socialists, but Morris was inspired to compile his utopia by dissenting from Bellamy on at least three counts. He wanted government decentralised, he wanted work to become enjoyable through being integrated with craftsmanship and art, and town and country in their lives to merge rather than remain distinct. The locations of many utopias are purely imaginary, nowhere, as in Morris, or Erewhon, as in Samuel Butler's book of that title. But in the 20th century, real-world journeys could become more important. Fewer parts of the world remained unexplored, and travel was easier and quicker and cheaper. The utopia of many 19th-century British radical working people and nonconformists had been the United States, land of freedom and opportunity. Then, after 1917, communist Russia moved into fashion, of which the American journalist Lincoln Steffens famously said, after a three-week three visit in 1919, I have seen the future and it works. And in the 1960s, even more improbably, the utopian fashion became Chairman Mao's China. When the supply of earthly journeys dried up, fictitious journeys to outer space could take over, and the 1930s saw the emergence in America of a mass market for what had only recently become known as science fiction. Utopias have drawbacks, though. They bypass the really difficult problems, especially friction within and between states, and abolish occupations which thrive on conflict, lawyers, soldiers, diplomats, and even politicians. We are very well off as to politics, old Hammond tells guests in News From Nowhere, because we have none. And Morris mischievously adds that it has therefore proved possible to convert the Parliament House into a dung market. Somehow, utopian governments are portrayed as collecting abundant statistics. These in Bellamy vastly improve productivity and harmonise supply with demand and in H.G. Wells, foster economic internationalism and abolish crime. And yet this magical collection of information seems effortless, unresented, and its collection is implicitly thought compatible with liberty, individuality, and privacy, and even with an implausible retreat of government and a return to the simple life. Nonetheless, the socialist utopias were inspirational, not just the labour movement, but other parties seeking from the 1920s to preempt Labour's appeal by accepting the moral challenge thus posed and into adjusting their own policies accordingly. So Labour's inter interwar problem became to cultivate mass support by yoking its idealism to a practicable programme. Fortunately, practical socialist achievements could be drawn upon from Scandinavia and from those relatively democratic and egalitarian export colonies, Australia and New Zealand. In restraining low pay and in promoting trade union defence, franchise reform, nationalisation, old age pensions and public welfare. Reaching out to the future was integral to planning with the interventionist state 
and particularly useful was the projection into the future of long-term trends from the past. But this could be reliable only if the trends, when projected and publicised, didn't cause people to change their behaviour. No such change was likely in family planning, so demographic statistics remain particularly valuable to those who plan future life cycles in welfare, education and healthcare, to name only three policy areas. Unexpected national disaster, natural disasters can, of course, occur. But even a man-made disaster, like the First World War, merely returned the death rate to the level of 30 years earlier. And the Second World War's death rate, for most age groups, actually fell. Employment trends are also valuable when projected into the future as planning aids, because they become apparent only slowly to those seeking work. Norman Tebbit in the 1980s found it very difficult to persuade people to get on their bicycles. The more ambitious government's intervention, the greater the difficulties, however. How can planning in democracies rival the Soviet five-year plans, given that democracy and its party systems require frequent electoral mandates? How can the government's relatively short time scale match private industry's need for a longer time scale? How can government's planning targets survive Goodhart's law whereby the targets immediately prompt self-protective evasion? Targets for ambulance times of arrival, for example, distorting other public health priorities. And how can the state set targets without guidance from the market? How can employers and employees be harnessed without becoming Soviet-styles adjuncts of the state? And if harnessed to the state, how can consumers be protected against producers? And if such corporatist strategies succeed, can the democratic values of privacy, liberty, individuality and voluntarism be upheld? And how, in an increasingly globalised economy, can planning at the national level be harmonised with the separate plans of other countries? All these dilemmas became apparent during the Wilson government's short-lived attempts in the 1960s at a national plan and later at the nationwide planning of wage differentials. In the midst of such problems, Alec Cancross, as late as 1964, could find it a little shocking that forecasting should be so long neglected as a subject of study. In the 1970s, all this came to a head with the difficulties in finding a place for the third London airport, given the ever larger and more complex mathematical models that an economic system seemingly required. Also in this decade, incomes policies yoked to a growing nationalised sector had to be abandoned for good as unworkable if only because their concentration of economic with political power endangered civil liberties. A governmental report of 1978 was almost despairing. The problem of economic forecasting is one of projecting the future without knowing precisely where one is now, it said, and worse still, precisely where one has been. Try applying that to subsequent concern about climate change, for example. By the late 1970s, Margaret Thatcher saw these problems as accelerating towards dystopia and with great difficulty called a halt. The 19th century's utopia, which sought to make things happen, was succumbing to the 20th century's dystopia, which seeks to prevent things from happening. 
The OED's first citation for dystopia dates from 1952 in the sense of an imaginary place or condition in which everything is as bad as possible. Let me contrast Bertrand Russell in 1969 on how things had changed during his lifetime. When I was young, Victorian optimism was taken for granted. It was thought that freedom and prosperity would spread gradually throughout the world by an orderly process, and it was hoped that cruelty, tyranny and injustice would continually diminish. Hardly anyone was haunted by the fear of great wars. Hardly anyone thought of the 19th century as a brief interlude between past and future barbarism. For those who grew up in that atmosphere, adjustment to the world of the present has been difficult. This contrast with the Victorians is overdone, but it does provide context for the many late Victorian novels predicting future invasions of Britain. This war-making type of dystopia aimed not to reject war as such, but to prevent it by building up national self-defence against it. The novels usefully warn us against exaggerating Victorian optimism. Macaulay's image of the future New Zealander gazing upon London's ruins had a long and wide impact. And such predictions of disaster often combined two streams of Victorian pessimism, fear of invasion yoked to fear of an almighty eager to punish nations for their sins. From the 1840s onwards, fears of a French and later of a German invasion were prominent and to them the many Victorian fortifications on the south and east, of, east coast of England still bear witness. The first such publication was the anonymous history of the sudden and terrible invasion of England by the French, published in 1851. But there were many more, and George Chesney's The Battle of Dorking, 1871, accelerated the trend. Only, in only two years, between 1871 and 1914, were no tales of an impending war published. Supreme among such tales was H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, as I well know, because I was an enthralled listener to the BBC broadcast version of it in 1950, its drama enhanced in six episodes by host Mars, the bringer of war, from his planet's suite, just as I was entering teenage. The book had appeared in 1898, in the middle of the period from 1893 to 1905, when interplanetary romance reached a peak of fashion in literary circles never subsequently regained. Like many in the 1890s, Wells wanted to shake people out of their complacency and to alert them to the fragility of civilization and even to man's insecure headship of the animal and insect kingdoms. Even now, for all we can tell, he wrote in 1894, the coming terror may be crouching for its spring and the fall of humanity be at hand. Wells's scientific background lent his fiction the scientific veneer that it needed, but The War of the Worlds and The Time Machine, 1895, also revealed him as a brilliant master of prose. Both stories show him enhancing the strangeness of the events he describes by juxtaposing the humdrum and the quotidian. The time machine's extraordinary events begin and end 
in the cosy male postprandial sociability of the candlelit smoking room in the time traveller's Richmond home. And the Martian invaders in the War of the Worlds stride in their monstrous tripods over the territory that Wells knew so well in the southwest of Greater London, whose middle class topography he outlines in detail. Much of the book focuses on how cumulative rumour gradually builds up into panic, causing cities to empty, populations to flee, and governments to be exposed as helpless. He provides breathless hour-by-hour anticipations of news broadcasts about a sort of Dunkirk in reverse, whereby refugees take to the North Sea's little ships, with the Martians ultimately defeated not by mankind, but by earthly bacteria to which the Martians were vulnerable. We have learned now, Wells' anonymous narrator concludes, that we cannot regard this planet as being fenced in and a secure abiding place for man. It's perhaps worth mentioning here as a footnote the claim in December 2014 of Ed Liu, former shuttle astronaut, that, I quote, a hundred years ago, if we got hit by an asteroid, that was just bad luck. We've now reached a point where if we get hit by a major asteroid, it's not bad luck, it's bad planning, or worse, stupidity. Asteroids are not, to my knowledge, uh, inhabited. But if we hadn't already got enough to worry about, the Astronomer Royal and others planned the adoption of Asteroid Awareness Day (laughs) on the 30th of June, 2015. Um, In 1893, the future Lord Northcliffe had discovered how effectively the tale of future warfare could sell his papers, and the journalist William Lecoeur serialised The Great War in England, 1897, published in 1894, was his trailblazer. Bertrand Russell's libertarian, rationalistic and progressive hopes were for the United Kingdom buried in the trenches between 1914 and 1918 and never resurfaced. Henceforth, the dystopia gained ground over the, over the utopia. Three classic 20th century dystopias deserve detailed discussion at this point. by E.M. Forster, Aldous Huxley, and George Orwell. Forster's short story, The Machine Stops, 1909, was the first 20th century British dystopia and was, as he recalled in 1947, a reaction to one of the earlier heavens of H.G. Wells. All three describe the damage done to human relations when the natural sciences overreach themselves. All three identify with dissidents from the authoritarian science-based machine, and all the dissidents have a pretty bleak time. Forster's Kuno dies when the machine stops. In Huxley's Brave New World, 1932, John the Savage hangs himself, and his fellow dissidents, Helmholtz Watson and Bernard Marx, are exiled to a remote island. And Winston Smith, in Orwell's 1984, published in 1949, ends up spiritually dead, um, the loving big brother and welcoming the prospect of a bullet through the back of his head. 
In all three dystopias, the dissidents don't just want to be happy, but to be happy in their own way, and all three fail. The epigraph to Huxley's Brave New World, concerned with genetic manipulation, is a warning against utopias from Nicholas Berdiev, the Marxist-turned-Christian. Population planning, let alone eugenic ideas, have never caught on in Britain from a combination of traditionalism, religion and socialism, later reinforced by the Nazi experience. At the time when Huxley's dystopia was written, however, eugenics seemed to many intellectuals a progressive cause, and Huxley's views on eugenics and democracy were too fluid and fragile for the book to constitute the attack on Wellesian utopianism that it's often alleged to be. Despite the great influence on Wells of Aldous Huxley's grandfather, T.H. Huxley, Aldous felt socially and culturally distant from Wells and was sceptical about his utopias, but are not, not enough to convert Brave New World into attack on Wells, though Wells disliked the book intensely. By 1961, however, Huxley could describe Brave New World as a warning. Its message was, he said, this is possible, for heaven's sake be careful about it. Orwell, in December 1943, thought Huxley's prediction of a completely materialistic, vulgar civilization based on hedonism less plausible than the austere, warlike society that he, Orwell, soon portrayed in his 1984. Though Huxley, in 1964, justifiably expressed surprise that the prophecies made in 1931 are coming true much sooner than I thought they would. The run-up to the Second World War had become so patent by the late 1930s that dystopian publications were redundant, but the wartime experience nourished more. Orwell pointed out in 1941 that Wells in the 1930s was still writing as though the Edwardian identification between science and progress persisted, whereas modern Germany is far more scientific than England and far more barbarous. Yet Orwell had not lost all hope. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightwear situation, he told Frederick Warburg in 1949, is a simple one, and this is italicised. Don't let it happen, it depends on you. When Warburg saw the text of 1984, he declared it's worth a cool million, million votes to the Conservative Party, and the scenery was in place for the Cold War. By 1989, Animal Farm and 1984 had sold a total of 40 million copies. Stories based on future wars were more prominent in British scientific romance than in American science fiction, reflecting the contrasting geographical and political situation of the two countries. The UK, close to Europe and its many conflicts, knew all about bombing after 1939. Just a slight re relief from this rather depressing part of my lecture. Um, a famous cartoon uh, after a bombing raid where, uh, by Struby actually, in the Daily Express, um, the wife is being told by her husband, the marrow is okay, um, it's, it's not even scratched. Um, it's a sort of part of Britain winning through sort of um, mythology. So we'd, see, we'd seen plenty of bombing here, and we weren't scru uh, scru uh, scrupulous about describing it in our, our fiction. 
whereas the USA's sense of security was, if anything, accentuated by the two world wars. British science fiction was readier than American to envisage the destruction of British cities by nuclear weapons. But visions of a shattered London were well established in British fiction well before the aeroplane, and the explanation of the UK's relative pessimism may well lie deeper. Perhaps dystopia harmonised better with the mood of a nation in relative economic decline and losing an empire, whereas American self-confidence was as yet undiminished. Nuclear weapons were so devastating that the distinction between the relatively focused warning against impending conflict virtually merged with the classic dystopia, whose gloom concerns society's overall makeup, as a modern and secular equivalent, perhaps, of the hell which had once terrorised earlier generations. Indeed, for the Archbishop of York, in a general synod debate on nuclear weapons in 1983, the parallel was direct. This debate was about the end of the world, he said, and how one might best delay it. This was, he added, a preoccupation familiar to the ancient world, though then a matter for joy and a development whose mode of arrival was less specific. The world will have to live forever now, he went on, with the fear of nuclear disaster. From now on, in every generation, will, every generation will be aware that it could be the last generation on the earth. One might have expected Hiroshima and Nagasaki immediately to reshape science fiction, but governments were reticent, the full horrors of nuclear weapons were not immediately apparent, Americans feared communism more than the bomb, and anyway, escapism was one of science fiction's selling points. What really ensured an impact for nuclear warfare in science fiction was the Soviet and American testing of the hydrogen bomb in 1952-3, at a time of extreme tension. It was at about this time that concern about flying saucers or UFOs began to spread, and worries about them spread sufficiently uh, by 1959 for the Bishop of Norwich in a House of Lords debate on UFOs to see belief in them as a sort of cult which threatened Christianity. As late as 2000, government papers on UFOs were still being withheld for up to 50 years, but they have now been declassified insofar as they survived earlier prunings because the Ministry of Defence thinks their sightings never lead anywhere. And in 2013, it closed its two-man UFO desk. <laughs> Hostility to nuclear testing was accentuated by Neville Shute's influential novel On the Beach, 1957, and by the early 1960s faith in the link between science and progress was sufficiently shaken for nuclear war fully to enter science fiction's agenda. By the 1970s, the Cold War had generated demand for which Sir John Hackett catered in the book he edited and largely wrote, The Third World War, August 1985, published in 1978. Replete with maps, photographs and advice from military authorities and government departments, it sold over three million copies in ten languages. Utopia and dystopia, at first sight antithetical, have much in common, and the early wells havered between them. A utopian, frustrated in his idealism, can easily turn dystopian, as with Orwell. 
The utopia once launched can spread dystopian thoughts more widely, especially when the utopia doesn't deliver its promised benefits. Then, the utopians, by trying to force it upon a disappointed public, send their utopia into the downward vortex of substitutionalist politics, behaving as though the utopia has already arrived and coercing the unresponsive towards it. Then, the greater the resulting oppression, the higher the ideals require to justify it. Some commentators have unsurprisingly detected affinities between fascism, the utopia, and even science fiction. Worse still, all dystopias have an anti-parliamentary war-making feel about them, a combination of the atavistic and the scientifically modern, accentuating by assigning different, distinct, voice, uh, distinct roles to the sexes. Both H.G. Wells and Aldous Huxley show little respect for the politician's relatively humdrum day-to-day -day business. Huxley and Wells both dallied with Mussolini's fascism in the confusing politico-economic situation of the early 30s. Huxley was a rather, rather a cultural elitist who could look down on Wells in 1937 as a rather horrid, vulgar little man, though Huxley somehow combined his cult cultural elitism with spending half a lifetime in California. Wells, in both his Fabian interwar phases, was also an elitist in that for him the future lay with expert, the expert, the technician and the scientist. This meshed in with his Dickensian lower middle class fear that the barbarians already building London's underground in the 1890s would eventually evolve into the Morlocks of his time machine to prey upon their betters up above and eventually eat them. In the War of the Worlds, however, the possibility of civilised mankind forming a resistance literally underground to the Victorian, victorious Mar Mar Martians is briefly raised and enlistens the coming race, 1871, and forces machine stops civilization's refuge also lies underground. The centralizing authoritarian and international structures recommended in utopias do not begin to show how a coercive domestic structure is compatible with political continuity or how it can generate the voluntary cooperation that an internationalist structure requires, let alone explaining how democratic values can be upheld in the midst of all this. Bernard Bergonzi thinks that Wells wished for a world where nothing would ever go wrong, or in other words, a world where no one need ever grow up. For all their elaborate apparatus of applied science and social engineering, he continues, Wells's utopias are the projection of a radically immature view of human existence. It's precisely because things do go wrong, politicians are required. So their subtle skills deserve a brief defence, I think, but there's no time for it here. I'll leave you to think about it for yourself. <laughs> so where have we got to? Phase one's otherworldly view of the future gives way in phase two from the late 18th century to the liberal self-help ideal of planning for a heaven on earth. Phase three occupies the 20th century and sees the utopia helping organised labour to gain ground while war and state intervention weaken liberalism and slowly advance the dystopia. Now, in phase four, we reach the present, 
beleaguered as we are in policy terms in a sort of limbo between statism and the free market and resorting to pragmatic compromise between the two. What is distinctive about this fourth period is the intensity of the pressure towards preoccupation with the present and the secularisation of the future, reaching new heights or depths. The word new became the catchword of the 1890s, the new woman, the new drama, the new realism, the new hedonism, and received a further push from the death of Queen Victoria and the arrival of a new century. Nonetheless, until 1908, the Times had no principal news page for the outstanding news of the day, and in the 1920s, the BBC thought news so objectively gathered that when none seemed forthcoming, the announcer would simply say, there is no news tonight. <laughs> Those were the days. Um, this is another Thruby cartoon, actually, from the Daily Express, which contrasts the Victorians in the top layer with no news at all, really. Um, and it's just Dr Livingstone's died uh, with this terrific cacophony coming through the news in 1936. Um, Today, both technical change and the mental outlook that accompanies it collaborate in an almost frenetic search for news with all the glamour that clusters around news desks and the people behind them or perhaps strolling in front of them. Jack Straw took Dr Michael Williams, Foreign Office expert on the Middle East, with him when briefing Tony Blair before the Iraq invasion in 2003 and Williams explained in detail ethnic and religious tensions within Iraq and the dangers of invasion. Blair, who alas went at St John's insofar as he read anything, read law not history or oriental studies, casually brushed Williams aside saying, that's all history Mike, this is about the future. Blair in his memoirs does at least have the grace to admit that his lust for modernisation early in his first government, was boundless, at times rather manic. From the present, then, to the future. I'm now in phase four, so I'll come back to that. Um, by the 1950s in Britain, the future was increasingly appropriated by the secular, professional or expert, with 40% of a quota sample of 1,005 UK adults in 2007, believing in neither heaven nor hell. Furthermore, those who do believe in heaven divide between, on the one hand, those who see it as prolonging the nicer aspects of life on earth, and on the other hand, those who see heaven as theocratic in nature with angels and beatific visions. Both groups, however, are much vaguer than earlier generations about heaven's details. Commemorative flowers are now often located at the place of death, roadsides and even football pitches, for example, rather than in churchyards, and funerals celebrate the life of the departed rather than brooding theologically over death. In February last year, I quote, a polite show of hands at the General Synod, unquote, even approved without dissent an optional alternative baptism liturgy with all reference to the devil removed as part of a drive to make services accessible to those unused to attending church. So our earthbound priorities lead us to reach ever more energetically towards an earthbound future if there is one. 
I was going to talk a little bit more about this, but I'll cut another passage and move on to the conclusion, a little bit more discussing people who do expressly discuss the future. You may be wondering, in fact, why in a lecture on the history of the future I've said so little about science fiction or about future studies, as they're called. This is because I think them far less revealing about the relationship between past, present and future than about the relationship, than, than about um, the interactions with the future that I've already discussed. Science fiction is inevitably what it says it is, fiction. It is may, in many of its details, illuminate some aspects of the society which produces it, but it cannot know about the future. As for what are called future studies, there's something absurd about the very idea of building an academic specialism around something that doesn't yet exist. Those who write about the future can draw only upon events that have occurred in the past. This was not the view taken, however, by H.G. Wells in his incisive, closely argued lecture about the discovery of the future at the Royal Institution on the 24th of January 1902. He distinguished between two divergent types of mind to be distinguished chiefly by their attitude towards time. The majority were backward-looking, the legal or submissive type of mind, rarely thinking about the future, the minority with a more modern type of mind, as he put it, which he thought could ultimately prevail because activist, progressive, creative and future-oriented. Mankind, through the scientific method, could, he thought, with greater focus at energy, discover more about the future than was supposed. His message, 30 years later, remained the same. In a BBC talk of 1932 entitled Wanted, Professors of Foresight, he complained that thousands of professors and students were working on the records of the past, yet, I quote, there's not a single professor of foresight in the world. The universities were unresponsive, and the market for Wells's priorities was partly met by intelligent and serious enthusiasts, mainly American, who began associating on a voluntary basis in the 1960s to promote futures studies, which would provide answers to large problems. Eager to make sense of a seemingly chaotic world, they were the sort of people who relished books like Toffler's The Future Shock or Fukuyama's The End of History, books which try to fill the gap left by the decline of earlier large explanatory systems such as Christianity and Marxism. Future students set up journals and institutes, create international structures, hold conferences and so on. Their mood is libertarian, not free market, but because they wanted mankind to make a rational choice between options made manifest, they organised themselves. Yet whatever Wells might say in 1902, both science fiction and future studies, decades later, remained defensive in mood seeing themselves as struggling for cultural and academic respectability. Hence the somewhat hermetic tendency, especially among devotees of science fiction, whose gatherings compensated in mutual admiration for the lack of respect they received from society. This defensiveness reflected Wells's failure at the Royal Institution in 1902 to recognise how false was and is the alleged dichotomy between studying the past and the future. Both activities seek to understand the interactions of human nature with its environment. 
both highlight the distinctiveness of our own society by juxtaposing a very different one, whether in the past or in the future. Both reject determinism, and in so doing, reject an unimaginative knowingness about real or imagined human history. Instead, they both seek to retain the visionary gleam which Wordsworth so valued in the young, that naivety about human actions which acknowledges that things don't have to happen in the way that they do. Those engaged in future studies implicitly acknowledge their affinity with historians when they arrange their insights in a pseudo-historical sequence, whether cast wholly in the future as historical novels or, as with Wells's The Shape of Things to Come, published in 1933, linking the history that has already happened with the history that may happen. I've argued in my lecture that people studying the past and the future inevitably use the same sources, material accumulated in the past. It would be nice if those who agree on so much could also agree that seeing human history through the lens of attitudes to the future in all its unpredictability will help us to understand past, present and future rather better. <laughs>